All right. I always give it like a couple seconds to start. Sure. All right. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's podcast for the American Bar Association. This is the podcast focused on cybersecurity, data privacy, and technology. And I am your host, Jordan Fisher, the Global Privacy Team Lead at Beckage. And I am very excited today to talk all about international aspects to data privacy and security, Brexit, all of these top issues with Clive Halperin. Clive, can you introduce yourself to the audience? Yeah, sure. Hi, Jordan. So um, I'm a partner at uh, GSC Solicitors. We're in the city of London, and I'm head of the corporate and commercial group there. And um, we're well, we're all working from home at the moment, like so many people that stuck here in the pandemic. Um, but I've always had, really since I, I trained as a pharmacist, in fact, at university, and then I became a lawyer. So I've always had an interest in science and technology and data and things like that. And that really graduated into my um, legal practice by the types of clients that came along, um, particularly really with the explosion, I think, of things like online uh, marketing, online sales, wide clients who had large consumer uh, populations. So they had to deal with large amounts of data. And you know, data protection law has been around in the UK really since 1984, I think was the first uh, piece of legislation. But for a long time, people were still really dealing with paper records. And, you know, computers were, you know, the, the empire of large organizations. But obviously, as time moved on and the internet evolved and people started getting iPhones and Blackberries, you know, the, the concept of data really started to come forward to people. And you know, there was a lot more publicity about regulation and people's use of data. And over time, I just naturally, because my clients did, um, had to have more and more advice on things like data security, privacy, uh, data protection compliance. And as things moved on, regulators started to get more involved. And some clients, you know, started to realize the importance of this and um, had to start taking, you know, it seriously and obtaining, you know, sophisticated legal advice on it. Yeah, and I think you point out a really good um, historical aspect, which is that you sit in the UK. So one, you have a different perspective than a lot of US attorneys on sort of the evolution of data privacy. And even though the GDPR, which is the EU data protection regulation, made a lot of waves in 2018, your practice has been dealing with data privacy and security for a number of years because it, it has been something both at the EU level and at the UK level that has been in existence for decades, frankly, um, and way longer than we see in the United States. Yeah, and, that, and that's definitely the case. And you know, particularly in certain areas, <clears throat> clients who, you know, more aware of the requirements, particularly in the healthcare space where they're dealing with, you know, now what the GDPR calls special category data about medical and other types of uh, personal data. And that concept has been around for a long time in the UK and Europe. And the need for, you know, making sure that proper consents where necessary are obtained and data protections dealt with in a proper way has been, has been around for a long time. Of course, though, there are many, many examples in spite of all of that, of the laptops being left on trains with sensitive medical data on it, the email that's sent to all instead of blind copied <laughs> uh, to people. So everybody sees everybody else on the sensitive data database have occurred you know, many times. I'm sure will still continue to occur. 
But certainly the advent of GDPR throughout Europe, and we'll come to Brexit in a moment and how maybe that now applies in the UK, but really brought a lot of focus to this. A lot of people who had maybe paid you know, much more of a perfunctory um, approach to data protection realized or started to realize because of the huge publicity that was coming involved and you know, potentially large fines that it was something to be taken seriously. And you really, I mean, that human aspect, I think, you know, it demonstrates that no matter where you are in the world, the human error aspect of it is always going to be relevant. Um, you know, and I think, you know, it's constantly something we're talking about in that security space. But I do want to turn into Brexit because I think having, you know, you're sitting in the UK right now, you're obviously right there at the heart of what's been going on with Brexit. Um, and so I just wanted to sort of ask, you know, where do things stand um, with Brexit and specifically as we sort of look at how they're going to address data protection concerns, at least the initial few months that we're heading into. I think it's still evolving, but I sort of want to get your perspective on that whole landscape. Sure. So yeah, it's still evolving, I think is, uh, is a good answer. I mean, uh, I, this is not the podcast to discuss negotiation techniques. I think there's probably another, <laughs> another podcast about that. But uh, I think it was a Christmas Eve present that um, the politicians gave, gave everybody. Up until then, everyone was wondering what was going to happen with data transfers on the 1st of January 2021, with the UK suddenly become a third country. Uh, was, were people prepared? Some people had taken a lot of steps for their preparation, others and many uh, had not. And then we, we got this kind of gift, which was a kind of paragraph at the end of the treaty, which said that there's this bridge period, they refer to it, where for an initial period of four months, I suppose that's till the end of April, possibly six, it's kind of a, almost a standstill. So it's not quite a standstill, but for data transfers between the EU and the UK, it just carries on as before. So there's not a requirement at the moment to have standard contractual clause agreements, um, which you otherwise you would, have, you would have had to have had in most cases. So we're in a kind of bit, bit of a hybrid stage at the moment. I think the aim from the UK's perspective would be that there's an adequacy decision made about UK data transfers so that things can carry on in that way after the end of this bridge period. Whether or not that happens, I'm sure the negotiators are busy at the moment assessing the UK's data protection uh, policies and standards to try and, to try and come to that conclusion. When you go to, um, I mean, just to for completeness, the UK has adopted what they call a UK GDPR, which is basically the same at the moment as the EU GDPR for all intents and purposes. So that hasn't really changed. Going forward, though, there's probably going to be a divergence because um, the UK is no longer going to be bound by decisions of the European um, courts. They're not going to be bound by the European data protection board, changes to GDPR or other regulations which may come in about, say, use of cookies or things like that will not be the same as in the UK. And the UK might choose to adopt similar standards. They might be required to because that might be a condition to maintain the adequacy decision. There's a lot of stuff which is still up in the air. So I think that um, it's watch the, it really is watch this space because it's almost impossible to predict. I think what most people are hoping, though, as I said, is that this adequacy, this decision will be 
uh, replaced. From a UK lawyer's perspective, it's a little bit more complicated because there's what's called legacy uh, data, to, which is data that was collected before the 1st of January 2021, to which uh, the EU GDPR applies. And I'm sure there's going to be lots of um, fun and games in the future about um, how this is all dealt with when there's complaints made. Yeah, and I think it's it's it, it, that brings up a good point of the that even though January first the UK exited out of the EU and is no longer technically under that GDPR umbrella, the data that would have been collected and maybe transferred to the UK or stored in service in the UK under GDPR is still going to have those GDPR obligations. So I always like to say the regulations follow the data, <laughs> right? So you don't yeah. you can't avoid it just by moving it out of there or changing the law. So. Um, that definitely is a, is a good point to make on the complexity of this. Um, I wonder too, um, you know, what does this mean from your perspective on, um, you know, continued data transfers to the US between the UK? Um, and could that add an additional level of complexity since, you know, for, for a lot of companies in the US perspective, they use the UK as their primary EU headquarters. Now, obviously that's a, they have to make a change as to that, but, Presumably, there's still data being transferred EU, UK, US, US, UK, EU. So I'm curious from your perspective, sort of where that, how that is going to play out if we even have any indication at this point. Yeah, I think, well, I don't think, <laughs> I don't think there's an easy answer to that. I think, mm -hmm. um, you know, already you're seeing that there's these new standard contractual clauses which the EU has issued, which are going to, change the way that data is transferred from the EU to the US going forward once they're adopted. I mean, I think there's going to be a transition period. Um, and whether the UK adopts those or similar ones or different ones is yet to be determined. I mean, the UK legislation at the moment has adopted the historic standard contractual clauses, which I think date back from you know, the early 2000s or slightly after that, but 2010, something around then. But um, they, they're just going to carry on using those, but they're really you know, quite out of date now. So that's why they're introducing new ones. Maybe adoption of similar standard contractual clauses will be a requirement for reaching the adequacy decision. Maybe the UK will choose to do that in any event, but it is definitely watch watch this space after the end of this bridge period because I think there will be additional complexities. There may be two sets of documentation which need to be entered into, one for the EU and one for the UK. I think that's probably most likely. And that adds challenge to what is already a challenging space of entering those, those standard contractual clauses because I find that to be one of the most challenging areas to negotiate with parties just out of confusion and the concept of transferring data versus accessing data versus server location. So I can't imagine adding another agreement that we have to sort of go through. So that, that will definitely be something to watch. Um, I wonder if, you and know- And I think on that, just okay. to add, just I think because of, you know, the way the new clauses are being drafted, there's gonna put a lot more obligations. So, uh, you know, there's gonna be, I think, warranties in them about checking out, you know, the data importers, security and rights of, um, protection for data subjects. And I, I think you're going to find a lot more work involved in getting those in place. And I think maybe that, that's a good transition to talk a little bit about the Sherems 2 case, which is why we are seeing an evolution of the standard contractual clauses and sort of 
a rethinking of data transfer and how that's going to be um, approached going forward. So from your perspective, you know, how was SHREMS 2 um, perceived within the UK, especially since it came out in July of 2020, about six months, obviously, before Brexit? Um, and now they could diverge from the way that SHREMS 2 is approaching international data transfers. I mean, the fact that they threw out the EU US privacy shield, there's now an opportunity for the UK to negotiate potentially something with the US. Um, and then in addition to that, the standard contractual clauses now have this added sort of supplementary measures potential addition to it. I, I could see the UK maybe taking a different approach, but have you heard or seen any indication of how the UK is gonna be approaching those SREM2 challenges that are posed now? I haven't as yet, because I think that they're still pretty much following the EU line in terms of enforcement, although they've, you know, <clears throat> the, um, the ICO in the UK has issued guidance on this, the enforcement, you know, doesn't really seem to be happening in a very large scale. Yeah, I don't know if that's your experience with U US companies as well. Um, it's going to be tricky because the UK is in this delicate balance between wanting to ensure the continuation of data flow with the EU, and if there seemed to be some kind of hole in that by adopting maybe lesser standards or different standards, uh, it's not fair to say lesser, but different standards with the US that might impact on the free flow of data between the EU and the UK. Uh, go there's going to be a balancing act here. I think there's a political implications here. I mean, I think that the litigation that you know we've seen take place, Shrems 2 and other ones, is, you know, data, trans data transfer is a bit of a battlefield. It's so important commercially now that um, although the authorities, of course, apply the law, um, um, apply the law, you know, even-handedly, you know, bringing litigation um, by individuals and, you know, it's, it's got more wider than data privacy connotations, I think. Let's just change I'm not sure that came across that well, actually, that last <laughs> bit. So let's just uh, let's just uh, let's just let's just re-record that last bit and just say that I think that data, you know, data privacy and data transfer is a economic as well as a legal battlefield because, um, of course, people are concerned about data privacy, but the implications of judgments like Schrems too, um, the effect of the privacy shield and other data protection. Um, systems in place, you know, have not just privacy issues, but also serious commercial issues on the ability of, you know, doing data, transferring data abroad and, and processing it abroad. What you may find that, what you may find out is that larger companies particularly choose to host their data locally. So host their data in the EU, that happens a lot, separately host data in the UK, potentially, uh, or not provide services if they're not major global companies to European or UK customers. I mean, I think you've already seen that with, <coughs> we've seen that in Europe with um, the way cookie Im policy implementations have happened with some you know, US sites just choosing not to make their sites available to users located in the EU and I guess now the UK because the dealing with compliance is just not high on their agenda to enable you know you know the public in you know foreign jurisdictions to access their data and that's I think you may see more of that it may be simpler to deal with it that way for larger companies 
No, and that's a good point. I think, you know, 10 years ago um, and, and up until, frankly, I think even four or five years ago, we had this like open border sort of approach to providing services and to the internet. And I think where we see the challenge is that we have this open internet, but increasingly the laws are putting in real imaginary virtual boundaries that companies need to take into consideration. And it really goes into how are you architecting your systems? How are you developing your products and your services? And when does it make economic sense to move those virtually into a new location? So I think it's gonna maybe delay moving into new areas or require additional consideration that companies really haven't had to make up until this point. Yeah, and I think that it goes hand in hand with enforcement because so much of you know concerns about data protection and compliance will revolve around the how the regulators choose to enforce it. If they only choose or mainly choose to uh, enforce against either very large multinationals um, <clears throat> or to blatant misusers of data, so you know, company, large organizations which allow large data leaks. And we've heard of, you know, hotel chains and airlines and loads of companies who, who have suffered that and received large fines or, um, you know, real misusers of data, robocallers and uh, spam texters and people like that. From, you know, while, while, while that is happening, most organizations will feel that they're not really in the spotlight of the regulators. And that's, you know, going to be a function of, you know, resource and desire to um, desire to deal with it in a particular, you know, in an in enforcement capacity and try and encourage people to comply with you know, sometimes data protection obligations, which are quite complex, uh, especially for small obliga- uh, small organizations to comply with. So proportionality is important, um, but it's still lots of organizations out there don't take into account uh, the importance of data privacy. I'm sure you and your practice, probably, I'm not going to say it's for fun, but you know, you read a privacy policy or a notice and you think, well, you know, who wrote that? And, and, but I understand that as well, because, you know, it is, it's complex. And, you know, for companies which do not have huge resources or organizations that don't have, you know, dedicated people dealing with this, it is something that's tricky to, you know, be compliant with. And it feels, I often find, especially for small to medium-sized businesses, and candidly, even large enterprises, they feel like it's Pandora's box, and they're almost afraid to open it because what they're going to find out, both about their network infrastructure, the data they're collecting, and their obligations is very scary. And so, you know, in a lot of ways, I think that companies need to embrace it at a cultural level almost before they can start to embrace it from an actual compliance perspective. Um, and regulations, enforcement of regulations is really probably going to push that. And I, and I think we have seen an uptick in enforcement. You know, now we're two plus years out from GDPR. We have more teams that are being developed. I think we have more, more of an understanding of what's required. I put that very loosely because I think there's still aspects of it that I even scratch my head and go, well, how would we even make that work? <laughs> But, you know, I wonder from, you know, speaking about Brexit and sort of the role of the ICO, the ICO has been a very prominent voice in GDPR. And I wonder if they're going to continue to have that same level of prominence in data protection now that they're outside of technically sort of the GDPR world. I think they will have, and I think they'll have an even more uh, intense focus um, because they will need to prove to the EU and to establish the EU and other countries where 
Um, you know, there are already good data protection laws, you know, you know, some of the US states, California, obviously Canada, where there are strong data protection laws, they will want to have the comfort that, you know, the UK is a safe place for your, you know, for your data if you're an individual. And I think their role will become more prominent. Um, there's always a tension because, you know, governments, as we know, like to have lots of access to data. That's part of the Schrems 2 issue, of course. And, um, you know, so there is this tension and this balancing act, which, you know, is going to be carefully navigated, I think, because, you know, the UK could find itself in the position of the US in terms of, you know, receiving data. And I don't think they'll want to want to be in that in that position. I think it will be bad for trade and um, it will cause a lot of complications and overhead. Um, and, you know, the kind of, like you say, opening the Pandora's box, it's a lot of effort to do, to do it. You know, it's, you know, telling an organization which may be focusing on other aspects like marketing or like the product development or software creation or whatever it happens to be that, you know, you've got to do a really intense data mapping exercise and understand all the data you've got and who's got it and who's processing for you. It's not a straightforward process to do it comprehensively. No, and I think that's the, the complexity only increases. And so part of my, you know, when I talk to a lot of clients, I always say it might feel like you're opening Pandora's box, but the box is a little bit smaller today than it's probably going to be in six months or in a year. And you could definitely say that last a year ago today, because that box has completely drastically changed in light of yeah. the pandemic and all of that. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, issues on the pandemic and, you know, data security, people working from home, much more use of own devices. So I think probably, you know, the you bring your own device to work policies which previously probably at best applied to cell phones or mobile phones um you know is now extended to laptops to shared laptops or desktops at home uh kids might be doing their remote schooling on the same desktop or laptop that parents are doing office work on and all of those factors you know risk you know exposure of data uh, that increases the need for training of staff you know ensuring you know, the obvious things like locking your screen and having separate user accounts, but not everybody's got the skill set even to set that up in reality, you know, at home, you know, organizations and corporations with big IT departments that can roll out policies are not the same as, you know, relatively small organizations or even startups, which may be processing a whole load of customer data and selling their stuff on Etsy and things like that. That's a great point too, because the size of the company is not necessarily the, does not always equal the same risk because small startups could collect just as much personal information as a large enterprise, just based off of their products they're offering, the services they're offering, et cetera. So it really is a, is a challenging space. Um, yeah. Well, Clive, I really appreciate you joining us today. This was fantastic. You know, we'll have to do a touch point in six months to sort of see where everything stands from a, from a UK perspective. But I wanted to ask you, I always love asking all of my guests, you know, is there a recent book that you have read that you can recommend on cyber privacy law? Um, you know, there's so many good uh, little tidbits out there in this in this space that, that people can read about. But I wanted to see if you had anything to recommend. Yeah, well, I do, actually. And, and I think it's a it's a good book. It's by an American, actually. It's called um, Social Engineering, the the source of human hacking. I don't know whether you've you, you've come across that. And there's a, it's by a guy called Christopher 
apologies for his pronunciation, Hadnagi, but it's probably pronounced differently. And he really talks about how you socially engineer people to, uh, to get into their to get their credentials, to get their accounts. It's a fascinating uh, book. There's a bit of psychology involved, um, you know, programming. Um, it, it's really interesting, but it's scary <laughs> because, you know, you realize how trained people can manipulate it. I mean, I've got clients who have been, um, unfortunately, scammed by effectively, you know, phishing type attacks and so um you know, every, you know and some of them are very sophisticated so you know we all like to think that we'd be immune immune to them but um um i've got i've got a i've got a friend who um tells me that when they do the penetration testing type stuff the phishing testing type attacks in their firm it's always the partners who fall for the <laughs> for the for the sign up for the free golf day or something like that and give away some of their credentials so uh so i don't think any of us are immune and the, you know educating ourselves on things that can affect us and our clients it is very very important because then we can pass that on to our colleagues and our friends and family and let them you know, try and know how to protect themselves. That is so key. Um, the, the psychological aspect of all of this is a whole nother episode we'll have to delve into in a future time. But I love that. I have not read that book, so it's going directly on my list. Um, but Clive, thank you again for joining us today. This is a fantastic conversation. Um, you know, everything that's going on, it's so unique and important to have perspectives outside of the United States so that we can sort of hear what's going on. So thank you for joining us. I really enjoyed chatting to you, Jordan. And uh, I'm glad, you know, it was a really interesting conversation. Thanks very much.